I want to share, before I go to my sermon, I just want to share something with you. I was uh, at the at the Spoon uh, Coffee House on Tuesday night, and Ginny and Ellen came. And Ginny reminded me of a message I had preached last July. And I remembered the title of the message, though I didn't really remember the message very well, to be honest with you. And the title of the message was Three Dreams and a Pastor. This was July 4th of last year. And uh, Ginny said that, you know, the ladies at the, at the, who meet on Tuesday mornings for intercession, that somehow that came to mind. She reminded me of it. And, um, you know, it just kind of felt like God when she said that to me. You know how that is sometimes? And so um, I went back and found my notes uh, from that day and looked over it. And I wanted to remind you of a couple of things. In that message, and I, want, I just want to remind you as a form to encourage you, okay? God's in control. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's really big, and he really loves us, you know? His hand is on us. And in that message, I kind of had reviewed uh, the word I gave the church for, um, for 2010. The beginning of each year, I seek God, say, look, give me some revelation about what's coming. And then I share that with you. And so at the beginning of 2010, if you guys remember, I said that um, it was from Matthew 8, where Jesus told the disciples to get in the boat, and he was going to take them to the other side. But on the way, they hit a storm. You remember, you remember me sharing that? I referred to that a few times last year. And so in this July message, I referred back to that. And I, and I noticed a few things. You know, what did we see in that account in, in Matthew 8? Jesus gave orders. He said that they were going to go to the other side. And that in the midst of them doing what Jesus said to do, without warning, Scripture says, a furious storm came up. And waves, multiple waves, came and swept over the boat. And as a result, the disciples were afraid. Kind of makes sense. I'm thinking if I was in that boat, I'd be afraid, right? These are professional fishermen. Some of them are freaking out. There must have been some incredible storm. And Jesus is sleeping. They wake him up. And Jesus' reply is, you little faith, why were you so afraid? Then he got up, he rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. The text goes on to say, as a result, the disciples were amazed. So a few things happened to the disciples in this process. The first thing they did is they obeyed. Jesus said, get the boat ready, we're going to the other side. The first thing the disciples did is they obeyed him. The next thing that happens is that the disciples were afraid. The waves are coming over the bow. They're afraid. And then the final thing it says about the disciples is that they were amazed. They were amazed at what God did. And I told you back then, and I remind you now, that in the midst of a storm, we all face storms in life. Sometimes we face them in our personal life. Sometimes we face them as a church. But maybe the greatest level of faith that we can exercise in the midst of a storm is to do what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? He rested. <laughs> he was asleep. His expression of faith in the midst of that storm was to sleep. So maybe when we're in the midst of our storms, we don't need frantic action. We don't need to panic. He said they were going to the other side. That's why he rebuked them concerning faith. He told them they were going to the other side. One way or another, they were going to get to the other side. They were going to fly over the water. They were going to go under the water, you know. They're going to be miraculously transported, but they were going to the other side because he said so. 
maybe the best way we can express faith in the midst of our storms is to rest. That's what Jesus was doing. And then I, this was in my notes. It, it encouraged me this week. I thought it would encourage you too. I said, remember this. Storms are not punishment. That storm wasn't a punishment to the disciples. It wasn't their disobedience that got the disciples in the midst of that storm. They, they, they did exactly what Jesus told them to do. <laughs> they were in those circumstances because they obeyed God, not because they disobeyed God. And not only that, God was with them. God Almighty was in the boat with them. Wow. That's pretty encouraging. So you could be doing exactly what God wants you to do. He could be right there with you, and storms can still hit. Storms are not punishment. And I said, in my notes it says, Bridge Long Island, listen to me. God is with us. What we face is not punishment for sin, disobedience, or rebellion. Sometimes we're just doing what he tells us to do, and storms hit. I had other things to share in that message. I reminded you of various bits of revelation that had come recently in that time period. We had had Jim Driscoll visit. We had Reese Saunders come and visit. And they both offered similar revelation. Jim stood here. Remember we had a big whiteboard up that Sunday? He likes to diagram when he speaks. And Jim is very, has a strong prophetic revelatory gifting. He said he saw a river coming down the center aisle of the church. And they saw a waterfall right here. Now, I always sit here on a Sunday. For years, I've sat on a stool when I preach. It's just my custom. I'm comfortable doing that. But Jim didn't know that. The stool wasn't here that Sunday, neither was the podium. I think it was, the podium was over there somewhere. And Jim was standing here, and he's saying, I see a waterfall right here. And he keeps pointing right to the spot. There's some kind of waterfall coming. I remember asking Jim at lunchtime, I'm curious, Jim, what's the waterfall? I know he's prophetic. I know he sees things metaphorically. So what's the waterfall? So that's a cataclysmic event. And he goes back to eating the sandwich. I'm thinking, dude, <laughs> give me more. You know, cataclysmic event. Thanks, pal. So I went on. I spent, you know, months researching waterfalls, and God spoke to me in a different way. But at the very least, it meant that something was going to change, Right? If you think about a waterfall, the, water, the water's going one way, and then something changes. There's a pretty significant change. It's not bad. It's just the nature of a waterfall. So that was in March. I think in June, Reese comes, my other buddy from Streams. And he ministers that Sunday. We had a great time with him. And he's standing up here, and he says, I see a cliff right here. <laughs> he starts pointing right here. I'm thinking, dude, what are you guys seeing over here? And he said that faith would be required. We would face something where faith would be required. Okay, so you just keep, I just keep collecting these little bits of information. Okay, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? I remember around that same time praying with uh, Peter and Maurice in my office one, uh, one day. And, and I, I see pictures too. And, and God showed me the journey that we were on as a church. And I could see this long, flat straightaway where everything was just kind of level and, and straight. It was very cool. And then it kind of morphed into a roller coaster with twists and turns around, 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 around. And I felt like, you know, looking back over these notes, Ginny, I appreciate the, the heads up on that because it was really life-giving for me to go back and look at it. Um, I realized over the last few weeks on the phone with people, 
Um, people would ask me, hey, how you doing? What's going on? I said, yeah, things are good. I said, you know, it's been pretty peaceful and quiet around here. I said, since, since um, the holidays, when, when Christmas, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, that's crazy for most people, you know. When my kids had come into town, they're, they're both on the West Coast, and we did all kind of driving. Man, we were just running ragged between the trips, you know, four trips to the airport, picking both of them up, dropping both of them off, going to Brooklyn to see family, going to Pennsylvania to see family. I felt like, you know, for that whole season, I spent more time in the car with my kids than anything else. So it was just a frantic time of activity. And then it got quiet. Like, I don't know, from maybe from the first of the year on. It just felt like that long, kind of peaceful straightaway. And I feel like we've, en we've entered the end of that straightaway. <laughs> and we've, we're kind of into the roller coaster portion of the ride. Roller coasters can be fun and exciting, you know, but, but they're not level and peaceful. And, you know, and that's okay. I'd had three dreams. I don't want to take the time this morning to explain all those three dreams. If you're interested in it, uh, you can go to the July 4th message. It's still up on our website. But just to sum it up, what I'd said that week was that change was at hand. Dramatic change. <laughs> Cataclysmic change. And that faith would be required. Enough faith to rest in a massive storm. One of the things that the dream had, one of the dreams that told me was that the old had passed away and the new had come. And that there was promises in those dreams. There was a promise of a new house. We're looking for a new place. There was a promise of a new house. And there were new tools given to work. These are good things. And I ended with this. I said that our love for one another would be tested. I think that's what happens in the midst of storms. Our love for one another would be tested. I'm determined to pass that test. I want to pass the love test. Man, if I fail every other test, if I mess up everything else, if I could only pass one, <laughs> I want to pass the love test. That no matter what, I'll choose love. Remember God speaking to me once, and he says, when you don't know what to do, and it'll be often, <laughs> choose love. Right? Scripture says love never fails. So as we go through seasons of change, even dramatic change or cataclysmic change, thanks, Jim, I want us to choose to love. I want us to live love. I want us to pass the love test. I think that's what gets tested in a community when things begin to change. And just one other thing. So like in 2010, I told you um, insight and revelation I had for the year. I did that for 2011. And in January, you can go online. Those messages are still there. And just a few things that God had showed me, I want to remind you today for 2011 to encourage you. God's in control. He knows what he's doing. I told you that 2011 would be a year of significantly multiplied transition. There's going to be lots of change. There's going to be a lot of transition that happens in people's lives. It's God doing it. The other thing I told you is that there would be new marching orders in 2011. I remember sitting up here and Joe was playing the drums. And sometimes in the rhythm of the drums, something speaks to my spirit. And uh, he was playing some kind of military-type rhythm on the drums at one point during worship that day. And I felt in my spirit what, what God was speaking to me at that moment 
is that for many of us in 2011, there would be new marching orders. That's a good thing. If God gives new marching orders, we ought to march to the orders he gives. Don't you think? He told me that back in January. I want to remind you of it today. And the last thing, I, sh I shared many things, but the, the last one I want to remember from that, from that message in 2011 was that I, I saw a picture. God speaks to me in pictures. And it was, it was kind of like a, a scene from an, an old western where guys are sitting in a saloon and they're playing cards, right? Can you picture that? And I could see the dealer. It was like I was looking over the shoulder of the dealer. And he was shuffling the cards. And, the, and he was dealing out of hand. And this is what the picture meant to me. That God's the dealer. And the cards are us as people. And God was shuffling the deck. And there would be a new deal. And I felt like that meant that, new, that people would be going to new places. That there would be groupings even of people that go to new places. There would be new places geographically. Nothing wrong in that. If, if the dealer takes the cards in his hands, if he shuffles them, if God takes us and shuffles us and moves us around, he's God. He's allowed to do that. And that's a good thing. So I know for most of us in our nature, change is unsettling. Most of us only like change to the degree that we're able to control the change. You know? When the change is out of our control, it can be unnerving to us. So I just want to encourage you. God said change was coming. He's said it to us. He said it to me repeatedly over the last year and a half. So as things begin to change, you know, enjoy the roller coaster ride. Know that God's in control and be at rest. He said he would take us to the other side. He's going to take us to the other side. Amen? Okay. Ginny, thanks for reminding me of that. Felt like that would be encouragement to some folks today. Okay. So I'll, I'll be, I'll try to be quick and efficient with my message. All that was just extra. That was just like bonus material. You now you get the extra DVD, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it was all extra. So I've been doing a new series of messages titled Living in Papa's Affection. This will be my fourth in that series. So if you have a Bible, open to Luke 15. The series of messages is based upon a book by Wayne Jacobson called He Loves Me. I love that book. Probably more than any other book I read last year, that book has blessed me and spoken to me. The three main points in this series that I'm speaking is this. Number one is that God loves us extravagantly. He loves us extravagantly. My second point is that unfortunately, most of us, <laughs> we just don't know it. For whatever reason, deep down inside, there's a question mark as to whether or not God really knows us, really loves us. We don't know it. My third point is this, that to a significant degree, the fault lies at the feet of organized religion. The reason why we're not confident, we're not sure, we're not certain of the Father's extravagant love for us is that organized religion has messed up that message. They've polluted it. They've distorted it. Now take note. I didn't say the church. I said organized religion. The church is his bride. And he said that he would have a bride without spot or wrinkle. Today's not that day. <laughs> but someday, he's going to have a bride that's perfect 
And he's in the process of perfecting us. So my first message on living in Papa's affection, we looked at 1 John 3, 1. It says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. I love that verse. Oh, just write that verse, put it on your bathroom mirror. You can see it every morning. What great love the Father has lavished on us. Let it remind you every day. Put it on the dashboard of your car. He's lavished love on you, and it's a great love. I told you that lavish means a downpour of rain. Most of us are stuck in, in what Jacobson calls daisy petal Christianity. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. And it's based upon our circumstances of life. Circumstances are good. We think he loves us. Our circumstances are not so good. We think he doesn't love us. And that daisy petal Christianity forces what I call PBC. Performance-based Christianity. And it's a lie. And the lie is this. If I just work a little harder, maybe then I'll earn the Father's affection. Maybe then he'll love me. I think it's time to throw away our daisies. That same message I told you, that religion, like chemotherapy, has side effects, causing a spiritual neuropathy that leaves us numb to Papa's love. And as a result, our perceptions and God's realities don't line up. We perceive things one way, his reality is another. And we misunderstand him. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. My ways are not your ways. Neither are my thoughts your thoughts. That means that our perception and his reality are not matching up. In the second message in the series, I talked about the attributes of God. I began by just saying how awesome he is. He's omniscient. He's op- omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's eternal. He's immutable. On and on the list went. And with that as a basis, he's an amazing God. He's, he can do anything. Nothing's beyond him. I looked at the incarnation. I asked some questions. Why did he do it that way? He could have done it any God could have come any way he wanted to. Why did he do it that way? More specifically, why did God wear a disguise? When he came, why did he wear a disguise? Why, was he, why did he come as a baby? Why was he hidden for 30 years? Even to his disciples, down to the very end. Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, don't you know me? Why did God wear a disguise? And the conclusion I came to, and you can listen to that message online as I played it out, is he did it for the purpose of relationship. So there could be genuine authenticity in the relationship, right? It's kind of like the uber-rich person or the movie star who kind of hides who they are so that there can be some genuineness in the relationship, that there isn't just stars in your eyes because they got lots of money or they're really famous. And that for the first time since the garden with Adam and Eve, Jesus, God, the, God himself, God made man, had relationship with us the way he'd always wanted it. It was real. It was genuine. It was authentic. We've been invited. The whole purpose, the whole reason why Jesus came, this whole thing that he created, he didn't have to do any of this. The Father, Son, and Spirit had existed eternally. And they shared perfect love with one another. And they created you and me to enter into that love relationship with them. And everything that's been done 
from then until now was so that we could share in the love that they already have. They loved us that much that they wanted us to share in that love relationship. That's outstanding. Look at the lengths. Read, read Scripture. Look at the lengths that God's gone to to foster a relationship with us, to foster friendship. Why all this effort if all he wanted was obedient servants? He wants more than that. He didn't want slaves. He wanted friends. He wants sons and daughters. Last week's message, we looked at motives. Why do we do what we do? And I took a, a good hard look at the motivation that most of us have come into the kingdom with. You know, with the whole hellfire and brimstone type messages. Terrifying people with the threat of hell. And so most of us accepted the Lord so we could get that, you know, get out of hell free card. <laughs> but it's a horrible foundation for a relationship. Remember I gave you the analogy of a guy who wants to date a girl? He said, hey, you know, wouldn't it be great I like, kind of like how we've been getting along and I'd like to take this relationship deeper. You know, would you be interested in doing that? And that'd be great if it stopped there. But then if he added this line to his, to his offer, he said, and I'm really glad you said yes, because if you don't, I will hunt you down and torture you for the rest of your life. <laughs> you know, now we've gone from the cool guy that you want to date to the scary stalker guy, right? That's a horrible thing. How can you have a real relationship like that? The woman's terrified. There would never be a healthy relationship under those standards, right? That's what we do with God. Let's terrify people with hell. And unless you have a relationship with me, I'm going to send you to hell. I think hell's real. I think there are some people who go to hell. But it's not my job to call who that's going to be. I think we'll be surprised about who's there and who's not. That's not my concern in that message. My concern is this. What's the foundation for a relationship? The foundation for a relationship ought to be intimacy. It ought to be trust. It ought to be love. And at some of us, we started this thing with a distortion. We started it with fear and intimidation and manipulation, and God doesn't do that to people. And so it's given us this twisted picture of who the Father is. And Jesus said to the disciples, if you want to see the Father, look at me. And the perfect expression of the Father in the world today was Jesus. If you want to know the Father's motives, look at Jesus. Look at what he did. If you want to know his heart, look at Jesus. It motivates his every action toward us, the love he has for us. And so with that, I get to the point today where I want to show you the Father in another way. Maybe in a way you haven't seen him before. And I want to do it through the story of the prodigal son. This classic text. So if you're there in John, uh, Luke 15, I'm going to start at verse 11. I'm going to tell the story that Jesus told. He said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after, the youngest son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of the country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. 
when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What was going on? Your brother has come, he replied. And the father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Such an amazing text. Lord, give me grace to share your heart. This is a story, it's a tale of two sons who are estranged from their father, all being in vastly different ways. But today I want to look at this from the, from the perspective of the father. What makes this text so vitally important is that in it, we see Jesus' description, Jesus' portrayal of who the Father is. This is very important. <laughs> Jesus is painting a picture for us of who the Father is. And so many of us just don't know it. Many of us, the image, the picture we have of the Heavenly Father, he looks a whole lot like our earthly fathers. And for some that's good, for some it's bad, for others that's just ugly. Here, Jesus is painting a picture of the Father. It's good for us to pay attention and to see who the Father is from Jesus' perspective. What an amazing Father he is. He's a Father like no other. Anyone hearing the story <laughs> would be shocked at the Father's actions. His arrogant son dishonors him by asking for his inheritance while the Father's still alive. And by all indication... Technical difficulties. By all indications, the father's nowhere near death's door. Right? The son's gone a long time, the father's still alive. The father sees the son coming, he can run down the road. I ran down the road, might be calling 911, get me some oxygen. Right? The father's nowhere near death's door. 
And still the son says, hey, give me half the inheritance. It's as if he was saying, I wish you were dead already. I just want your money. I just want your stuff. You see how dishonoring that is, right? So even if we could somehow understand the son's premature desire for his father's money, the father's response just defies comprehension. He gives it to him. <laughs> this is even more shocking than the son asking for it. He divides the inheritance between the sons, gives the son his share, and he lets him go. How many fathers would do that? Especially knowing that the younger son was up to no good. What kind of father is this? So what happens with the son? Scripture tells us that he squanders the inheritance on selfish pleasures and prostitutes instead of investing in his future. But the father doesn't nag him. He loses everything and winds up destitute. The father doesn't try to rescue him. He doesn't chase after his son and telling him that he's being foolish. He doesn't rush off and buy him dinner when famine hit. The father waited. He waited. What kind of father is this? Was the father indifferent to his son's plight? Of course not. Any parent of a wayward child knows that it's much harder to wait for them to come to their senses than it is to take some kind of action. And so the father waited. And he waited. I could just imagine that every time the father would pass by that road, he'd take a peek down that road and see if his son was coming. Reminds me of when my daughter came back from YWAM. She'd spent six months in Australia. And I remember we, we drove to SeaTac Airport, and we were just thrilled. We were giddy with delight to see her. And then the flight was delayed. And then it was delayed again. We were there, I don't know, six hours, I think, before her flight showed up. I remember we were there so long, I actually found the airport chapel and took a nap. <laughs> and then when she came, I can remember as she's coming through the gate, and I'm just peering through the crowds of people. She's kind of short, so I'm really looking hard. I hadn't seen her in so long. And at that first glimpse of her, my heart just leapt in my chest. I just couldn't wait to, to see her. I could imagine what, this, what it was like for this father who hadn't seen his wayward son. And he looked down that road, and he looked down that road waiting for him. For this prodigal's father, it wasn't hours or months. It was probably years until his son returned. And what does the scripture say? It says, while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. He's looking for his son. He spots his son. And I can imagine he was thin frail, filthy, destitute, broken. Could you imagine what he looked like? What does the father do? Does he stand on the front porch, tapping his toe, waiting for his son to grovel and come all the way up and kiss his feet? No. He jumps from the porch. He runs down that road. 
after his son. Now remember, this is the picture that Jesus is painting of the Father. Take note of a couple of cultural facts here. The father would have been dressed in a long, cumbersome robe, as was the culture of the day. He would have needed to lift that robe and expose his legs to run down the road. Now, most of us men, we can't relate to that. Ladies, have you ever tried to move quick in a long dress? What do you got to do? Right? The old man hikes up that robe, runs down the road. Now, there were were cultural norms. For an old man to run, he was sacrificing his dignity. To expose his legs, he was, again, sacrificing his dignity. And he did both of those things because of his extravagant love for the son that he missed. He ran after him. There's another way that the father shows his demonstrates his amazing love. What kind of father is this? Could you imagine what the son's thinking, right? So he's already been repeating this story in his head of what he's going to say when he sees the father, and he finally approaches you know, the entryway to the path, and here comes the father barreling down the road. I'm thinking in my head, if I'm the kid, you know, is dad happy with me, or is he furious at me? You know? I don't know. You ever see an old man run? It doesn't look so good. Maybe you can't really tell if he's happy or angry. And I'm thinking he must have guessed that his father was angry with him. Because as the father approaches, what does the son do? He goes right into his prepared speech. Father, I'm not worthy to be your son. And the the father, he doesn't even let him finish his speech. It wasn't like he stood there and said, yeah, that's right. You wasted all that money, ruined our family reputation, you come running back here. None of that, right? It makes me wonder how often we misinterpret the Father's intentions toward us. If the Son, if this prodigal could misinterpret. How often we confuse our perceptions with Papa's realities. He doesn't even acknowledge his Son's words. Scripture says, filled with compassion for him, he ran to his Son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. I remember when Lisa came off that plane first time we've seen her, <laughs> Nadine said to me, I'm going to hug her first. She said, I will knock you down. I'm going to hug Lisa first. She couldn't wait to get her arms around her daughter, and I couldn't wait for Nadine to be finished so I could get my arms around her too. I just wanted to kiss her face again and again. This is what this father does. The son's words were swallowed up in the father's extravagant affection for him. Not a hint of anger from the father. He didn't talk for one moment about the son's offer to be a slave, not even for a second. Instead, the father says, let's party. Scripture says, he says, quick, bring the best robe. Put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. He says, quick. Not after a long talk. He says, quick. Not after the son's discipline. He says, quick. Not after some new ground rules were established. None of that. The father doesn't do any of those things. He says, <laughs> and it was, it was not just any robe he put on his son. He said, get the best robe. 
And not just any calf. Get the fatted calf. How could this be? <laughs> the son had squandered the family inheritance. He deserved punishment. And not a party. What kind of father is this? Jesus is painting a very unusual picture for us. Isn't it amazing that at each point in the story, the father acted completely the opposite of how we'd expect a loving father to act? He should have never given an irresponsible son an early inheritance. He shouldn't have stood by while the son wasted it away. He shouldn't have welcomed him home so extravagantly without making him pay for his stupidity. The father's actions, listen to me, the father's actions make no sense at all unless he wanted something far more from his son than mere responsible behavior. The father's actions make no sense at all unless he wanted something more the mere responsible behavior. And it's what the father wanted is the key to this story. It may appear that the son's actions drive the story, but a closer look shows otherwise. Not the son's, not what the son wanted, but what the father wanted drives the story. And he wanted it so desperately he didn't spend anything to have it. So what was it? What did the father want from his sons? Was it to have them labor in the family business? Was it just to have them with him? Well, no. He, that's where the story starts. If, if that's all he wanted, he doesn't give the son the inheritance, right? He could have just refused a request. It wasn't what the father wanted. It wasn't enough. He wanted something more. What he didn't have was a loving relationship with either of his sons. The younger son saw the father as a lottery ticket. The older son just saw him as a taskmaster. They were both in the father's house, but neither one of them at home in the father's love. Could that be why the father let the son go? Rather than force him to stay and deepen his son's resentment, the father lets him run to the end of himself. He lets him run to the end of his self-sufficiency. And in that place, the son discovers who his father really is. The son had no idea how loved he really was. And nothing he had done had diminished that love. The father wanted an intimate relationship with his sons. That's the point of the story. He wanted them to know how deeply they were loved. And he wanted to experience that love in return. Listen to me. The father didn't want the son's obedience. What he wanted was his son's heart. He didn't want his son's obedience. He wanted the, the hearts of his sons. I can tell you as the parent of an adult child, nothing I enjoy more 
than the healthy give and take of an adult relationship with them, where I express love to them freely and I receive that freely from them. It's so much better than when they were little and they just had to do what I told them to do because I told them to do it. The relationship is much more mature now. There's nothing better than that. That's the point of the story. The father didn't manipulate his sons by anything he did. He was loving the sons at the deepest possible level. That love explains why the father let the younger son go. And it explains why he embraced him so passionately on his return. The father knew that the son's sins were punishment enough in themselves. And the father ran to him because he didn't want him to suffer one second longer than necessary. The son's pain brought him home. Nothing else mattered. And God feels that same way about you. He feels that same. This is the picture of the father. This is the love the father has for you. He's not interested in your service or your sacrifice. Let me say that again as the pastor of this church. <laughs> God's not interested in your service or your sacrifice. He only wants you to know your love. Hoping you'll choose to love him in return. Understand that and everything else about life will fall into place. If you miss that, then nothing else will make any difference. So let me ask you a question about the story. When do you think the father loved the son the most? When in this story did the, pro did the father love his prodigal son the most? Was it when he let him go? Was it when he gave him the inheritance? Was it when he waited for his son? Was it when he met him on the road and embraced him? Did he love his son the most at the party? When did he love his son the most? There was no point in the story where he loved his son the most. He always loved his son completely, no matter where his son was. The father's love for the son never changed. The father loved his son completely through the entire process. It's the only constant in the story. The events of the story cannot be accounted for by the varying love of the Father, because it never varies. But only by the varying perceptions of the Son. At different parts of the story, the Son understood and didn't understand how loved he was by his Father. His Father's love was consistent. The Son was never less loved than at any other point in the story. He only lived less loved. When the son took the money and ran, he lived less love. When he wasted it on his selfish pleasures, he lived less love. When he started back home practicing his speech, willing to be a slave, he lived less love at that point. Remember perceptions and reality. His perception of God's love for him, of the Father's love for him, was inconsistent. The reality of the love constant, unchanging. 
finally home, well-fed, well-dressed, at the Father's table. It sunk in that he was loved. But he was always loved. Most of our lives, if we're honest, I'll say most of my life, I've lived less love. When we worry that God will ask us to make some terrible sacrifice, we live less love. When we indulge in sin, we live less love. When our circumstances give us anxiety, it's going to make our head explode. We live less love. When we try to earn God's favor by our efforts, we live less love. When we get caught up in religious obligations to make ourselves more acceptable to him, we live less love. That's the story of the older brother. He did all that was expected of him, but missed out on the relationship his father wanted with him. What the sons represent. The youngest son represents those who run from God in rebellion. The oldest son represents those who try to impress God with their religious commitments. Both never come to the depth of relationship the father wants with them. Rebellion or religion, the result's the same. We miss out on intimacy with Papa. And he misses out on the relationship with us that he desperately wants. Everything about your life hinges on this one question, on the answer to it. Do you know how loved you really are? Do you know how extravagantly loved you are by God Almighty? Isn't it about time you found out? When Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus concerning the love of God, this is what he wrote. Imagine if he wrote this to you personally. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And that you may know this love that surpasses knowledge. And that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I pray that for you today. I pray that for me. More than anything else, as your pastor, I want you to know that God loves you extravagantly. I want your picture of the Father to be Jesus' picture of the Father. This is an amazing Father that we have. And his love for us is beyond anything we can comprehend. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that your spirit would come right now and that you would reveal to your people any area of life where they'll live in less love. Be it rebellion or religion. If they're living less loved, I pray that you just put your finger on that spot right now. If they're running like the younger brother or working harder like the older. Lord, I pray that they'd know the truth and they would set them free. Set us free from rebellion. Set us free from religion. I pray, Lord, that we would know the truth about your extravagant love for us. And that that truth would set us free.
Lord, I pray now that you would stir up in our hearts passionate love for you. That we would have the relationship with you that you've always wanted us to have. That it would be deep and long and wide. That it be rich and be real and be intimate. Do it, Lord. And Lord, I ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. I love you guys. Thanks for your patience today. I know we went a little bit longer than usual. You guys have an awesome day. If anybody else needs prayer, you didn't get it earlier, please come on down. I'll be happy to pray for you. Always have an awesome day. I'll see you next week.